Simulacron simulation, finally. Uh, so this is in 81, this came out. Uh, just following seduction. And this is, uh, be straight up about this, this isn't my favorite. It's good, but it's not my favorite. I guess to get right into it, he starts off with a quote. That quote is fake. You're gonna sound like an idiot if you if you try to, you know, take use this seriously, because the quote is fake. There is an interview with Baudrillard um, much later than this was, much after this, the release of this book, where someone asked him about it and he makes a joke about it and how he's like, um, yeah, people thought it was real and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I feel like deep down he thought it was real. Like there's another point, one of his cool memories, when he goes on this whole spiel about how. Stalin had a body double, and that Stalin and the body double died just, you know, a couple of days apart or something, and how that was evidence of, um, you know, the reality of simulation, if you will. But to get into the book, seriously, but remember, that, that, that Ecclesiastes quote is, is fake. Don't believe it. So how do we start out here? We start out with the procession of simulacra. So this is when he's laying out, you know, the varying degrees of simulation. So a little bit of a, to preface this a little bit, jumping right into the Baudrillard's work with this book is a, in my mind, very bad idea. Because in many ways he establishes what he's talking about here in other texts. So if we just think about simulation as a concept, we'd be quite lost, because simulation is bound with so many, like, very many cultural, or, I guess, cultural modes of oppression that just thinking about it as being related to the media, thinking about it being related to technology or anything like that is kind of naive. In fact, it's not really kind of, it's very naive. And people tend to read Baudrillard as a thinker of that. So they think of, oh, the matrix, right? You know, that clear divide between reality and simulation. When he himself set up the matrix, actually here, I could probably find it. Right, so this is in uh, The Conspiracy of Art. Oh, God, that would have come out in the 90s, I think. But uh, he, he writes... Well, this was an interview. He states that the Matrix's chief value is that it pushes all these elements, like simulation, you know, reality, anything like that, to a paroxysm. So paroxysm is like an endpoint, or its conclusion. Yet it does it more crudely and in a far less complex way. Either the characters are in the Matrix and belong to the digitized universe, or they are radically outside of it, in Zion, the resistor city. It would be interesting to show what happens at the point where the two worlds meet. The most embarrassing part of the film is that it confuses the new problem raised by simulation with its arch-classical platonic treatment. This is a serious flaw. So we think of that platonic treatment, and of course there are... It's, it's important to see how Plato shines through in this in some way, 
So we think back to the Republic, uh, when Plato's, toward the end of the Republic, Plato's talking about how uh, there are different degrees of reality. So there's the nature, that which is created by God, um, things found in the world, stuff like that. The second degree deals with uh, the creation of certain things, like how a craftsman makes a table, how that is one step move away from reality because it demanded like some kind of uh, human inter intervention. And then the third level would be like a painting of a table. So all these are kind of at play here. Now to get into it, because this has been, I apologize for this digression, but these are all important things to say, lest I worry people might misunderstand. So he begins this book by talking about Borges' fable, right? So that is the fable where the map becomes so large, so precise, that it covers a territory, the whole, a whole territory. And in that way, uh, the distinction between the map itself and the t t territory becomes blurred. So he says, um, if once we were able to view the Borges' fable in which the cartographers of the empire drop a map so detailed that it ends up covering the territory exactly, dot dot dot, as the most beautiful allegory of simulation, this fable has now come full circle for us and possesses nothing but the discrete charm of second-order simulacra. So second-order simulacra, if we think back to symbolic exchange and death, corresponds to the realm of the real. So what belongs to that are political economy, you know, uh, um, the psyche, power, all these correspond to second-order simulacrum which was a move away from first order, quite, you know, obviously. So for him, today abstraction is no longer that of the map, the double, the mirror, or the concept. Simulation is no longer that of a territory, a referential being, or a substance. It is the generation by models of a real without original or reality, a hyperreal. So this is interesting. He gives us a new term hyperreality, because for him simulation is not in and of itself an oppressive phenomenon, where a thing that many readers of him get fundamentally wrong. They think simulation, hyperreality are, you know, you can use either term, uh, when in fact that is in some capacity the case. Simulation, you know, even given his location of a telos to it, or of it having a historical quality actually exists across cultures, epochs, whatever, giving it something of a relationship to the world itself. So simulation exists at the moment, and there's another point in one of his other texts, like 40 books, so I, I often I have trouble recalling exactly where things come from where he states that the first, you know, mode of simulation was when, when language, you know, started to become part of our lives, right? Where things stood in for other things, not because they had any affinity with the things themselves, but simply because, you know, we collectively agreed upon that, which I think is fair. So with that, it's important to note, and I really want to emphasize that simulation does not have a kind of oppressiveness innate within it. That is where hyperreality comes in. And then, welcome to the desert of the real. So then, by crossing into a space whose curvature is no longer that of the real, but that of truth, 
The era of simulation is inaugurated by a liquidation of all referentials. Worse, with their artificial resurrection in the system of signs, a material more malleable than meaning, in that it lends itself to all systems of equivalences, to all binary oppositions, to all combinatory algebra. So this, this is really difficult to grasp because at one time we want to think of Baudrillard as a thinker of signs as being something of an opening of possibility especially if we think of the last book you know if you want the spark notes version you can look at what i put up here on that on seduction but there is an affinity between seduction which is something that baudrillard celebrates and signification and signs whereas here he seems to be much more reserved he's a little bit more cautious about signs and the distinction i think is that we must maintain is that when he's talking about signs in a negative light, he really means it in, you know, in, in accordance with hyperreality, in the way that all things are forced uh, into their image, or how the territory is forced into the map to the point that it becomes that. Whereas he he almost wants to make the keep the maintain that distinction, and it's very platonic. Like he he wants to get out of that sort of discourse, but he always finds himself back into it. But anyways, this is what we have here. So to entertain the, uh, the kind of platonic affinities a little bit more, thinking about how Plato locates in the first degree of reality uh, a relationship with God, but what Baudrillard has to say about God is rather interesting. So he says that, um, does it remain the supreme power that is simply incarnated in images as a visible theology, or does it volatilize itself in the simulacra that alone deploy their power and pomp of fascination? The visible machinery of icons substitute for the pure and intelligible idea of God. This is precisely what was feared by iconoclasts, whose millennial quarrel is still with us today. This is precisely because they predicated the omnipotence of simulacra, the faculty of simulacra having a, having have of a facing God from the conscious of man and the destructive annihilating truth that they were allowed to appear that deep down God never existed, that only the simulacrum ever existed, even that God himself was never anything but his own simulacrum. So in this way, if we can accept Baudrillard's thesis and how God is in, the, in themselves has always ever been a simulacrum, thinking back to Plato, then Plato's formula, or the one that Socrates uh, proclaims is just another form of simulation where that first order of reality that first degree of reality was only simulation if we accept Baudrillard's thesis here in that God is, has only ever made itself himself themselves manifest to us in the form of signs so the four orders of or the successive phases of the image or simulation go as follows for Baudrillard so, firstly, it is the reflection of our profound reality. So in this way, let's think about a painting, for instance. And second, it masks and denatures a profound reality. So it's where that map comes to, be, comes to be the territory. Third, it masks the absence of a profound reality. Now we've, we've totally forgotten that there was ever a territory underneath. And fourth, 
It has no real relation to any reality whatsoever. It is its own pure simulacrum. So everything that has that der derives, or everything that comes out of that third stage, where we've totally forgotten that there ever existed such thing called the territory, belong to that fourth level, right? And then, I guess, technically you could posit that every subsequent one would open up a new level, a new order. But that's, you know, I don't even know how you'd theorize that. It would, without it just being redundant, no, it's interesting nonetheless. That's, I will posit that, that every subsequent phase corresponds to fourth order uh, simulacrum, or the fourth phase of the image. So, why does this all occur? What is the goal or the purpose of hyperreality as it manifests itself today? Well, the answer would be much easier to explain. It, it makes much more sense having read the stuff that leads up to this, but I will try to give a neutral uh, kind of standalone answer. We use these simulation as a strategy to convince ourselves that the things that we represent have not disappeared. So in Baudrillard's words, it goes as follows. Our entire linear and accumulative culture collapses if we cannot stockpile the past in plain view. So this is how pornography plays a certain role. We convince ourselves that sexuality hasn't disappeared by bombarding ourselves with images of, with pornographic images. We convince ourselves, we try to convince ourselves that money hasn't disappeared, you know, the dropping of the gold standard, or that it even existed at all with, you know, credit or something like that, where money seems to be in, uh, in abundance, right? There's even those people that have virtually no money, you know, the majority of people can, with credit, get whatever they want. Money doesn't have any limits. And it's in that way that these simulated models operate in order to convince us that we haven't lost these things. Because I believe the alternative would be rather chaotic. We don't want to believe that these things have disappeared. We don't want to believe that, you know, sexuality is something that has perhaps never existed. Or that the way in which we engage with it has never existed. Or that a thing like nature perhaps has never existed. Perhaps nature has only come into fruition at the moment that we designated it as such to belong to certain zones, which is ironically a very unnatural thing to do. So it's in that way, and I, that's one of the ways I like to think about it, and that's how I like to explain it to anyone that's interested, because it, it, somehow it sticks, like it seems to make sense. So here we come then to Baudrillard's Theorization of Disneyland. So why does Disneyland exist? In very much the same way why those other mo models of simulation exist, to convince us that, you know, America itself is not a cartoon, right? So we create Disneyland so that we can say, no, cartoons are in there. That's where cartoons are. That's where the imaginary is. That's where falsity is. That's where cartoons are, when in fact we are that for Baudrillard at least, how America, in very many ways, is that, how America serves, is a caricature of itself, has become a farce. Not to say it ever wasn't one, but
but it's what we have. So in Baudrillard, Baudrillard's words, Disneyland is presented as imaginary in order to make us believe that the rest is real. Whereas all of LA and the America that surrounds it are no longer real, but belong to the hyper-real order and to the order of simulation. So what, what stands in opposition to simulation, right? The kind of oppressive model of simulation, because we know that simulation and reality, which is something he makes clear, he states this explicitly in The Perfect Crimes, one of his 91, early 90s books, that simulation is not the opposite of the real. For him, then, what is that that stands in opposition? If, you know, we can be so blunt as to state that we're dealing with a dichotomy or a binary here. But for him, there is an answer. There is something that stands in opposition to simulation, or the real. And that is illusion. So what he says of illusion is that the impossibility of discovering an absolute level of the real is of the same order as the impossibility of staging illusion. Illusion is no longer possible because the real is no longer possible. It is the whole political problem of parody, of hyper-simulation or offensive simulation that is posed here. Power, <coughs> excuse me, power capitalizes on this distinction or this loss of a distinction, I guess, by uh, well, this is its only strategy that it uses against this defection or this loss of the real in, by injecting the real and the re referential everywhere. Kind of like how the mass media or any other simulated, ultra-simulated form like that bombards the people with images or the consumers with images. Uh, power does this to persuade us of the reality of the social of the gravity of the economy and the finalities of production so that we do not lose faith in such institutions because so much is held up by them. So everything that occurs plays into the hands of simulation or the, or the hyperreal in some form or other. Which is why we try to instill some meaning into the world. Like what all the all the you know, discussion currently around the U.S. president, you know, what role they had in certain meddling or whatever. We care so much in these things, even though, you know, to many, um, the outcome would not have an effect on us. In fact, for those on the left, it would probably have a worse effect, considering the, the vice president. But we try so desperately to integrate to kind of inject meaning into a certain system so that we can still believe in it. Because it would be... There's nothing really detrimental about, say, impeaching a president. There's nothing really detrimental about that. What, it, what would be detrimental is to believe that there is nothing behind the semblance of the political or how it only exists as a simulated model. And it serves a certain function at that, and how the president is in itself part of that very system precisely by their, you know, their own bombardment of images, their own bombardment of messages that feeds into that very system. But in Baudrillard's time, he, was, he would be talking about Nixon, and what he says about Nixon is that 
Nixon has nevertheless arrived at the goal of which all power dreams, to be taken seriously enough to constitute a mortal enough danger to the group to be one day relieved of its duties, denounced and liquidated. Which is why, I guess, any sort of fame in that sense is good if we think of the logic of the hyperreality, where it does serve that goal, it exists within that system, and it does perpetuate it as such. So there is a dream. We do dream of there being a single locus of power that can be overthrown, that can be challenged, and that real change will ensue. But considering, and I don't mean this in like the conspiracy theory type way, where there are people in some hotel room, you know, pulling the strings, but that the very cultural logic of the system in which we find ourselves is predicated on the maintenance of a certain hyperreal formula that keeps us in a certain state of arrested development. So in very much that way, we exist, we, we, we don't exist, we uh, participate in that very system as much as anyone else. So this is one of the ways in which Baudrillard is able to push the idea, push the thesis in one of the sections in the first chapter, the end of the Panopticon, that the Panoptic system has really come to an end. There is no single point that watches us, that um, shapes us, molds us, makes us uh, docile bodies. Instead, the eye of the TV, in Baudrillard's words, is no longer the source of an absolute case, and the ideal of control is no longer that of transparency. This still presupposes an objective space, that of the Renaissance, and the omnipotence of the despotic gaze. It is still, if not a system of confinement, at least a system of mapping, more subtly but always externally, playing on the opposition of seeing and being seen, even if the panoptic focal point may be blind. So it's not as though it's a one-way street. We send our gaze back to the television. And this is very much following his theory of seduction. For those that aren't necessarily familiar, it is the idea that objects and subjects inform one another. They shape one another. Or how subjects and subjects form and shape one another, and objects and objects. Or however, uh, whichever permutation you want to throw in there, so there is never just a simple exertion of power on one for on one zone. How that power is either called for by a certain zone, giving them something of an autonomy in that exertion of power. But for more of a explanation on that, either go and read Seduction, which I would recommend, or check out what I, I said about it rather um, stupidly. It's I really I don't want to. This, this stuff is really difficult. I don't want anyone to think that I, I know more about this than anyone else would, so please just bear with me. So such a, such a sentiment as the medium is the message, Alan McLuhan, uh, Baudrillard just throws out the window in one swift kind of backhand, you know, by stating that because everywhere we are is the medium, Right, everything is in support of this proliferation of images in some form or other. How it can't necessarily just be reduced to the television, to the computer, to the screen. The formula disappears. Where the medium is the message, 
no longer holds because everything has become the medium in this sort of dilution. We have sort of, it has sort of disappeared. Or in his words, there is no longer a medium in the literal sense. It is now intangible, diffused, and diffracted in the real. And, no, and, and one can no longer even say that the medium is altered by it. So hyperreality, the ultimate goal of it, this is again drawing on some of his earlier work in, in um, Symbolic Exchange and Death, is that it drives towards a law of equivalences, or the dissolution, or the total eradication of negativity or contradiction. So it works towards total operativity. So Baudrillard then takes one of the most extreme examples and thinks about uh, nuclear war, or nukes in general, or how and, and how they're connected to uh, terrorism, to which he says that uh, Atomic war, like the Trojan War, will not take place. But will not take place. The risk of nuclear annihilation only serves as a pretext, through the sophistication of weapons, for installing a universal security system. So it's about globalization in that way. It's about globalization in the form of a total world-type government system that crushes, uh, you know, negativity or crushes difference or otherness in favor of this, you know, kind of whitewashing the globe in a sense, rendering everything the same, simple, that return to the world pre-Tower of Babel, one language, one people. These are all terrible ideas for Baudrillard. And it's in that way that he says that the balance of terror is the terror of balance, or that sort of equilibrium. So it is because of this that Baudrillard is able to make the outlandish claim in his words that the USA pulled out of Vietnam but won the war. What he means by this is that as soon as Vietnam had recognized uh, a military in the form of the um, Northern Vietnam and Vietnamese um, uh, troops, then the USA didn't need to win because the USA is the model for that world government system really kind of that world global system, world global system, you know what I mean. In that way, all it had to do was back up and say, you've entered our system, that's all we wanted. We don't need to win this war. There's nothing more we can gain out of this than that. So, Baudrillard says it as follows, as soon as the Vietnamese had proved that they were no longer the carriers of an unpredictable subversion, one could let them take over. So there's an extremely important point here, and it, many people, uh, I think, get this wrong. I know I've been saying that a lot, and this is kind of a faceless many people, but eh, I mean it. He states that the flesh suffers just the same, and the dead and former combatant, combatants are worth the same as in other wars. So this is in relation to thinking about the about wars as being a simulacrum. So one of the charges against him by thinkers like Christopher Norris or Douglas Kellner have been that, or Stefan uh, Mistrovic, no, no, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, some of the charges against Baudrillard has been that he just disavows uh, real suffering or reality, when in fact uh, he does nothing of the sort. He acknowledges that and he knows that everyone is thinking about it in those terms and he's totally fine with that. He doesn't want to say 
no, don't think about it like that. Rather, all he's doing is saying, there's another side to this. Okay, you all keep trying to figure out what's going on here. I'll go over here and try to figure out this problem. Thinking about war in relation to simulation or death or anything of that sort. And what role it necessarily plays in hyperreality or in simulation. So it's in that it's in that capacity that he's that he's able to say that thus one can completely miss the truth of a war, namely that it was finished well before it started, and there was an end to war at the heart of the war itself, and that perhaps it never started. Now this is especially true of uh, the Gulf War stuff later on that you know he he would only write about in, in ten or so years following this, but in relation to Vietnam, if we hold onto his thesis, the only possible way that Vietnam and the Mies would have were able to successfully fight back against, you know, the U.S. What I will call an invasion was if they acknowledged their military in such a way. So in that way, the war was in itself completed before it started. If the goal of the war was in fact to get them to recognize that and then enter the kind of global system of recognition. So it is in that capacity, I believe, that Bojard means the war was over before it even started. So the rest of the book deals primarily with with a number of like cultural icons, right, and cultural artifacts. So it's difficult to kind of know how I want to approach this. Cuz it, it would just seem kind of like like a list if I went from one to the next. But then again, I don't want to admit anything. I'll just I'll just run through it. I could have thought of that without saying it out loud, but there you have it. So one of the preceding chapters, one of the subsequent chapters is Holocaust. So what that signifies for him is that uh, the film Holocaust or the TV um, program does not, is not a neutral thing that just presents events as they have occurred in history, right? So this is following his thesis from the preceding chapter, the, um, the history chapter, where he states, and this is the general thesis of that chapter, uh, cinema itself contributed to the disappearance of history and to the advent of the archive. Photography and cinema contributed in large part to the secularization of history, to fixing it in its visible, objective form at the expense of the myths that once traversed it. So in that way, you know, uh, it is for that reason that Baudrillard thinks that Holocaust being part of that cinema machine or that television machine um, falls prey to that same method. So Holocaust, in his words, so uh, this forgetting is still too dangerous. It must be effaced by an artificial memory today everywhere. It is artificial memory that effaced the memory of man, that effaced man of his own memory. This artificial memory will be the restaging of extermination, but late, much too late, for it to be able to make real waves and profoundly disturb something, and especially, especially through a medium that is itself cold, radiating, forgetfulness, deterrence, and extermination is still a more system systematic way, if that is possible, than the camps themselves. One no longer makes the Jews pass through the crematorium or the gas chamber but through the soundtrack and image track, through the universal screen and the microprocessor. So we leave trauma in this way, um, how such a thing can 
it'd be a I think a perfectly fine way to cr criticize such a television program is re-traumatizing people how because of its affinity with reality or that thing called reality how we can't downplay the effects that images can have in eliciting certain responses, physiological responses, especially in relation to um, sufferers of PTSD. So I'll jump now, and I'm really sorry for this, it's just I'm having trouble to piece together uh, like a coherent sequence for this without just jumping around like a mad person. But I'll jump to the Apocalypse Now chapter, nevertheless. So, this is following very much what Baudrillard had to say in the first chapter about Vietnam. Where here he says that America may have lost the war in that they pulled out, but they won the film. The film in itself was the victory for the United States. So what he says is that the war in Vietnam in itself perhaps in fact never happened. It is a dream, a Baroque dream of napalm and of the tropics, a psychotropic dream that had the goal neither of a victory nor of a policy at stake, but rather the sacrificial excessive deployment of a power already filming itself as it unfolded, perhaps waiting for nothing but consecration by a superfilm which completes the mass spectacle effect of this war, and that is Apocalypse Now. So, he continues, um... But one can always retrieve a tiny little idea that is not nasty, that is not a value judgment, but that tells you the war in Vietnam and the film are cut from the same cloth, that nothing separates them, that this film is part of the war. If the Americans seemingly lost the other one, they certainly won this one. Apocalypse Now is a global victory, cinematographic Jesus. power equal and superior to that of the industrial and military complexes, equal or superior to that of the Pentagon and of governments. So if we think of the film itself, which is something he doesn't really get into here, he dedicates two pages to it, um, this is mirrored in the film itself, where you have, uh, God, you have Willard's team on the boat going through uh, Vietnam into Cambodia. Now, there's an important detail about this film that I feel like the, those faceless some people miss. And it is that these the people on the boat never actually in kill any uh, enemy military personnel. Sure, you have a lot of combat, but at no point do you actually see them killing another um, an, an, an enemy, you know. You see them shooting out of helicopters and stuff, but it's never totally clear whether or not they're able to kill anyone. They kill civilians, sure. They kill other Americans, sure. But they don't kill the enemy, which is interesting. Kind of feeds into this. What does the enemy look like? Does the enemy have a face? Many times when we see the enemy in the film, they're running from a distance. Or when they're in that trench with that other American who uh, shoots the grenade launcher thing. The enemy, again, does not have a face. The enemy is faceless, like those other people I, I continually mention. And it really, I think it plays an interesting role, especially in the way that we think about, or can think about, 
um, Baudrillard's general thesis about hyperreality, about the dissipation of contradiction, the kind of denying of an identity to the opposition, the er eradication of difference, if you will. So the following chapter goes into what he calls the hypermarket and the hypercommodity, terms that fit pretty well with this idea of the hyperreal. So for him, the objects are no longer commodities. They are no longer even signs whose meaning and message one could decipher and appropriate for oneself. They are tests. They are the ones that interrogate us, and we are summoned to answer them, and the answer is included in the question. Thus all the messages in the media function in a similar fashion, neither information nor communication, but referendum, perpetual test, circular response, verification of the code. Now the code is something that he kind of unravels in his earlier works. And the code, to put it uh, simply, we think of the code simply as organization, right? We think of the code as being the establishment of a general law of equivalence, of um, the structural law of value, to you know maintain his um, his lexicon. It is the um, kind of establishment of a coherent system, one that is you know that gains a certain degree of power and is able to disturb or disrupt any opposition to it. So in this in this uh, capacity, the role of the hypermarket goes far beyond consumption and the objects no longer have a specific reality there. What is primary is their serial circular spectacular arrangement. So arrangement, think of organization here. The future model of social relations. So it's in that way that he continues that the form hypermarket can thus help us understand what is meant by the end of modernity. Let's give myself a paper cut. Very nice. The large cities have witnessed the birth in about a century. He chooses the date, or the year 1850 to 1950, of a generation of large modern stores. Many carried this name in one way or another, but this fundamental modernization linked to that of transportation did not overthrow the urban structure. The cities remain cities, where the new cities are satellitized by the hypermarket or the shopping center, serviced by a program traffic network, and cease being cities to become metropolitan areas. Where there is no longer, and this is also thinking back to symbolic exchange and death, where he thinks that we are, we've moved past production, we've moved past uh, any sort of relationship with wealth and, and, and production to just um, the, the, the sign of wealth or the sign of money that doesn't have that fundamental connection to thinking even to this book that aura or that sort of initial um, territory that hasn't been covered up by the map so I think I'll I'll end this there about midway through the book and then it'll take off again um, but yeah it's, it's important to consider you know I hope I maybe de demystified some of these things. It's 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 not easy. Uh, I mean, it really makes my head spin. And that this book, I don't even know how many times I've read this one. But um, yeah, try to keep those things in mind. And if anyone, like, I really hope that if anyone has some quarrel with what I've said, they they'll take it up with me. Like you know how in YouTube here, be nice, respectful. But I'm curious to see what other people have to say. And, well, what I will definitely include is that 
you should go and read the book itself. Don't take what I say as being face value. There's a ton of other resources online, a ton of other smarter people that get into this. Go check them all out if you're really interested. Should we all say something different? I've actually haven't done a whole lot of, uh, you know, YouTube searching for other people's explanations on this, but I'm sure everyone does an immaculate job. But anyways, for those that made it this far, thanks a lot, and I'll 